So I could see a mom in distress that their kid was coughing and they were so embarrassed. I was like, hey, don't worry about it. This happens, it's post-viral, and my kid had the same thing. Welcome to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Mark Bonta, a podcast that examines health issues with a critical eye grounded in scientific skepticism. Disclaimer. The Ditch the Lab Coat podcast is exclusively meant for general informational purposes and should not be regarded as a substitute for professional medical services, including medicine or nursing. It does not create a doctor-patient relationship, and any reliance on the information provided in the podcast or linked materials is at the user's own risk. The content is not intended to replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The expressed opinions belong solely to the host and guests, and they do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the hospitals, clinics, universities, or any other organization associated with the host or guests. Well, folks, we have a great episode planned for today. This is the second of a three-part series whereby we go through the past, present, and future state as it applies to COVID-19. Joining me in the studio today is my colleague and friend, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. I'm sure you'll remember him from the prior episode whereby we went through our past experiences with COVID. Suman is the current head for the Division of Infectious Diseases at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga. This is a huge hospital conglomerate. In fact, it's about to become the largest hospital in Canada. He's done extra training in tropical medicine, having trained in Peru, and also under the tutelage of the late Dr. Jay Keystone, who is a world-renowned expert in tropical medicine. He's trained countless medical students and residents. He served as the internal medicine clerkship lead for about a decade at Trillium Health Partners, whereby he oversaw the growth and development of doctors in training. He's a huge Rafael Nadal fan and Montreal Canadiens fan. He's a closet geek who plays old Sierra games and watches pre-1990s Doctor Who episodes. I love having him on the show because he speaks candidly. He speaks from the heart. He's not afraid to criticize things that he said in the past. Those of you who watch Canadian news may certainly recognize him as he was one of the many faces of the COVID-19 pandemic being interviewed on national news almost daily. I love having him here. In our last episode, whereby we relived our collective experience in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, we picked apart some of the things that both of us said in the mainstream media as it pertained to social distancing, stay-at-home restrictions, vaccinations, and all of that stuff that we lived through. We talked about how what we learned in our past experience of the COVID pandemic played into our behaviors in the home environment, and it was definitely a fun and stimulating conversation. Today, we get right into the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic, talking about how things are unfolding in real time in the hospitals, in the community, what happened to daily case counts, what's up with our approach to treatment and management, and how are we dealing with things on a personal level at home, with children, with friends and family members, and how are we dealing with things in the hospital setting? So with all of that being said, let's get right into the episode and let's have a great time today. You were the first to uh, challenge some of the things that people were just telling us to do. Everyone get vaccinated. Well, maybe we should look at who actually needs this. Close schools. Well, what's that really doing? 
So I, I wanted to welcome you back for our second episode, a three-part series on COVID-19. So we have uh, Suman Chakrabarty, who is the head of infectious diseases at Trillium Health Partners, soon to be the largest hospital conglomerate in Canada, who's seen countless patients with COVID, both inpatients, uh, people on ventilators, uh, people who are no longer with us, unfortunately, and then people who survived COVID and are in clinic, and then like everybody, all their friends and family members who had it, and uh, even people now who are still testing for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to COVID present, which is the second part of a three-part series, which is where we are now. It's 2024. We have the lived experience of these various waves of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have a lot of experience. We have a lot of data. We have a lot of numbers. We've had vaccines kicking around for a while. I just want to get right into it and ask about when you stopped feeling abnormal for having a dry cough in a movie theater. It's funny. you met, That's awesome. It took a long time. So I remember when, uh, just like you, I have some of mine are younger than yours. But what happened was my daughter entered school in the September of 2021. And the thing is, kids, as you know, they're just coughing, runny nose all the time. And I remember being there with other parents who were like very embarrassed that their kid would come back from having an illness. And they had, as you would normally have, a post-viral cough. And I think that when I started feeling comfortable again is that, you know, we got together as parents, we were all in this shared experience. And we realized that, look, a lot of us had had COVID by that time. We're not bad people, right? Uh, That's one big thing. And we know that this was a normal part of having kids was having coughs all the time and parents occasionally getting sick. So I would say starting around late 2021, we started feeling better. 2021, yeah. And early 2022, and that by that time, Omicron was in full force. And you may remember for us, at least in Peel, the mask mandate, oh, wait, it was provincial. So it was, it was all of us in March, 2022. And by that time, I think I'd gotten much more comfortable with just the idea that we're back more in a normal situation. And uh, it took a long time to get there. And it was a process after that. But I think I'm back to normal. And we all did it too, which is as parents, right? You have three kids? Three kids, that's right. Right? I got four. Bro, there's always someone sick. And, oh, yeah. and with COVID, with wave one and two, like, boy, that was the longest we went without kids being sick, waking up in the middle of the night. So one of the good things of the lockdowns, there was a lot of bad. One of the good things were our, our kids weren't getting sick a lot. But now we're back to the way things were. And there's always someone sick in the household. But when we started to change from restrictions and when we started to get the pandemic fatigue, right, as parents, that I want my children in school. Mm-hmm. Young children, especially, you know, four or five, six-year-olds, they can't learn kindergarten on Zoom. They need to be socialized and they need to be with people. And part of that means they're going to get coughs and colds. And as a parent and as a healthcare worker, I'm going to use my common sense. And if you're deathly sick and you're vomiting and have a fever, you're not going to go to school. But if you have what you described as a post-viral cough, which is a well-known phenomenon, your airways are irritated after you've been sick, you're no longer contagious and shedding particulate matter, you're going to have a nagging cough. doesn't mean you stay home for weeks. And there was this period where I recognized that you're going to have to go, and I'm no longer ashamed of going to that uh, hockey dressing change room with other kids, that movie theater, and I'm not going to anxiously suppress my cough, you know, turning red, suppressing that cough that you have, (laughs) all of the excuses. So what are some of the excuses uh, you use? You know, I just went down the wrong way. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, actually, it's funny because I just had to cough uh, and I muted it just now. But yeah, I, I used <laughs> asthma a lot. Every kid had asthma. And, uh, but, you know, I think that uh, for me, I didn't use as many excuses because, like I said, I was feeling better about it early on. But what I did try to do was use my position as an infectious disease doctor to make others feel comfortable. So I could see a mom in distress that their kid was coughing and they were so embarrassed. I was, hey, don't worry about it. This happens. It's post-viral. And my kid had the same thing. And just kind of resolving that tension. I did that in many, many situations, whether it was gymnastics for my kids or at a, at a dinner. And I find that that really helped other people to feel comfortable and not like an outcast for two years at that time, two, two and a half years, we were making feel like uh, people that were sick naturally or the contact with others was almost immoral. And I really wanted to kind of do my part to diffuse that. So full disclosure, there was a time when I actually Googled non-infectious causes of cough. And I remember what I wrote down in the Google search term, non-infectious. The first thing that came up was causes of cough. Interesting. Um, so I wasn't the only person looking for no. that. But I remember going through in the summer allergies, or allergies is a good one. You got a cough, it's my allergies, right? Runny nose, a little bit stuffy. I get, oh, I get allergies this time of year. Just say yeah. it convincingly. Yeah, yeah. Asthma for cough. Asthma was mine. Right, maybe some medications, maybe a little bit of heartburn. Mm -hmm. And then always something went down the wrong way. Like in the movie theater, because I want to enjoy the movie. I have a post-viral cough. Or maybe I was coming down with something. Yeah. Right. But it was, it was a man cold. You know, am I going to stay home with, I never stayed home no. with that before, no. but it's the popcorn. It's salty, right? Oh, I got a kernel. Yeah. Oh, I got a kernel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that. But for a year after March 2020, I wouldn't dare go anywhere. And I was so embarrassed if I had a cough. And even if it was a non-infectious or non-post-infectious cough, mm -hmm. you know, because I actually legitimately has me go down the wrong tube. But like, what an uncomfortable feeling. But now it's, it's just, it's part of life. You know, like for most people, we've always lived with viruses. Kids always have stotty noses and coughs and colds. And after you're sick, you often feel lousy a little bit longer. I'm not talking about long COVID syndrome, but I'm talking about that nagging cough that persists, yep. maybe RSV, right? I'm seeing a lot of RSV in the hospitals right now. You might still have night sweats for weeks after yep. you've had the virus. You're, I tell patients, you're going to have a cough for six to eight weeks yeah. and you're going to go on TV and on the internet and all these things are going to be spun at you as cough suppressants. None of it works. Yeah. Right. Yep. And especially if you're old, taking a cough suppressant, good way to fall the next day because you're all drowsy and mm -hmm. lethargic. Just give it time, it's going to go away and expect the fact that that's the natural recovery process of the chronic cough. So, what are some other behaviors that you got sick of in COVID that now are things that you do normally or are totally okay with that you weren't okay with in 2020? Like we talked about the coughs, right? And going out in public with a cough. Anything else? Well, I think just in general, uh, social distancing, like, uh, you know, you, you worry constantly around, like literally looking over your shoulder all the time, like the idea of having to keep apart from people. It was liberating. Just look, I just wanted to be in a public place with people around me. That's one of the first things I uh, would do when the restrictions were lifted. Another big one for me was masks. I think that masks, uh, look, I mean, it's, it's a huge topic, but just to kind of keep focused here, I really, really hated wearing the mask uh, when we had the provincial mandate and it was just getting so tiresome. And I think that as soon as, I believe it was March 20th, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 2022, it lifted right? And I remember just going 
to the grocery store, going to square one and just walking around without a mask. And it felt awesome. And that was one of the things that I think was the biggest. And just the idea of just having a get together, not looking at COVID counts. So that's another thing that bothered me is that the COVID graph and the counts, people used to look at them religiously and base their behavior on what was happening with that curve and not coupling my plans with that. These are the things that I think were liberating once you started to uh, leave them in the past. I don't like a lot of things about Donald Trump, but I do like the statement of fake news. And (laughs) those COVID counts quickly became fake news because you're only as good as the quality of information you're collecting. Mm -hmm. So of course the counts weren't that high in wave one, Well, it's because we were only doing PCR tests, that great nasal swab, that comfortable nasal swab test on the people who were sick and coming into hospital. But the counts went up once we had the capacity to test more people and to test at home. But there still were a ton of people who weren't looking for it. So I feel like that shift towards things like wastewater signals is a much more reliable source of, you know, how active a virus is. But just then to get an idea of what we have in store, you know, we spoke about this on the last episode, which is we've learned to live with the seasonality of the flu virus, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's winter, right? That's you're going to get sick. We've all learned to live with and accept that. In COVID, we went through these various uh, stages of grief, I guess, where it was, oh my gosh, another wave is coming. And then we quickly realized that this is what every other virus does. That's right. right. We have flu season, we have cold and flu season, and we get used to it. But we're not necessarily looking at how many people have the flu or RSV today. We may get an idea that there seem to be a lot of people sick, and perhaps things like wastewater signals are helpful for that. But we've learned to live with it by and large, as we have with other viruses. Mm -hmm. And when you shared that story about the mask mandate, so as someone who, like you, had to wear a mask every day and everywhere, right? Like when you walked into the hospital, they had these people sit at the door, right? The pandemic greeters, that's what they were called at one of the hospitals I worked at. And uh, they would make sure that you put your mask on. And I would be walking in the hall alone with a mask on. I'd go to the washroom with a mask on. And if you took it off, you felt naked. Yes, right? yes. If you took your mask off in the hospital, I, I remember like, that oh, feeling. Like, people would be looking at you, yeah. right? Sometimes the mask would rip and I'd have to embarrassingly ask for a new mask. It's not that I'm an anti-masker, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's just my mask ripped. Please give me a new one yeah. as I stand here alone in the hospital with absolutely no symptoms. It's crazy. Yeah, I agree. And after living that for so long, the day the mask mandate was lifted, same as you, I went to the grocery store and there was no anxiety or panic or... It was just like, thank goodness, this feels so much more normal and this feels so much more right to get rid of things. And so I think about behaviors, how wearing a mask initially was a badge of honor, right? You were protecting people, you were stopping the spread, right? You were stopping the spread of this virus. But now when I see someone in a mask driving their car alone, yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah. Right. I get it. If you're immune suppressed, you're getting cancer treatment, you have a chronic condition, right? You have an immunological condition, you're at risk of picking things up and you choose to be extra cautious and safe and and wear your mask. That's different in a public space around people. But if you're wearing an N95 mask in the car with the windows rolled up alone, that says something different. And so if you think about mask wearing, like let's get back to where we are with that. If you're having a conversation with somebody, knowing what you know is is an infectious disease expert who's kind of lived through COVID, who do you tell should wear a mask? 
And uh, why should they wear a mask? And in hospitals, when do you think people should be wearing masks? My opinion on this is certainly different than a lot of people that we kind of talk about this publicly. I don't think a mask is in the long term helping the outcome. First of all, if anybody wants to wear a mask, go right ahead. I think that, uh, you know, nobody should be shamed for it. You know, if they want to wear a mask in a public place, go ahead. The issue that I have is that we have pre-pandemic evidence of viruses that are less contagious that, you know, on a community level, masking is not changing anything. And if there is a signal, it's maybe a temporary signal, whereas if you kind of take the time from time zero to whatever, everybody's going to be exposed to the virus unless you're not around people whatsoever. Viral transmission is a normal part of living in a society with others. So I think that for a time, you could wear a mask and maybe temporarily avoid infection. But the reason why I don't recommend, for example, a person that would be at risk for severe disease, like lymphoma, the reason why I don't say, hey, you should wear a mask when you go out in public, the reason is that it gives a false sense of confidence that like, you know what, like if I go out, I'm not going to get sick if I'm wearing the mask. And yes, the mask could reduce the risk for a short time, but I don't think it's realistic in the long term. In the hospital, again, like we have protocols for patients who are sick with respiratory diseases, influenza, tuberculosis, influenza-like illness, that type of thing. I don't think that this idea of putting a mask mandate during times of increased transmission is doing anything because people are getting it outside. They're bringing it in. You know, there's tra- we have a mask mandate right now and the transmission is still happening anyway. I think that we need to kind of take a step back and understand that viral transmission is going to happen, right? There are certain situations where we can briefly reduce the risk. For example, a short patient interaction that doctors that we have, right? But that said, the idea that if you give everybody a mask, we're going to suddenly stop transmission. I don't think the evidence shows that. And I don't recommend masks for the purposes in the public or universally in a hospital are needed. That's one of the things to this day is still bothering me. We need to get away from that. So knowing what you know, is a mask protecting others from you or is a mask truly protecting yourself? We've all talked about the viruses, right? Rubbing your nose, rubbing your face, the things that people do. So if someone out there right, who doesn't do our jobs, isn't working in hospitals, doesn't know, you know, have a good wealth of knowledge as it pertains to infectious diseases, communicable diseases, et cetera, is wearing a mask, right? Which people are actually benefiting from that individual wearing a mask? The individual themselves? First of all, when you look at it again in the long term, I think that it might be reducing the risk a little bit, but I'm talking about on a pragmatic level. I don't think it's helping either. I think that like if you look at the way people wear masks, using the same mask right now, I do think that if every single person in a society were wearing an N95 mask properly and we had amazing ventilation, we probably would have a significant reduction in uh, respiratory transmission. If everybody did it right all the time, the world doesn't work like that. And that's one of the big things I think we lost in the pandemic is that that's not realistic. You can't blame people because the intervention didn't work. You look at the intervention, you look, this is not pragmatic. That's, I think, the big part that we missed. And you saw what happened in the extreme sense in China where the people were being welded in their doors, being arrested for not wearing masks. And once Delta came around, everyone got COVID anyway, right? So the other thing that I think we'll talk about this is, is it even beneficial to completely reduce and stop viral transmission? And my 
argument to that, my assertion is no, on the long term, that actually could have deleterious effects. And we're kind of seeing that now as population immunity is starting to kind of reestablish itself. In general, people are getting more sick with regular viruses now than they were in 2018. And part of that is because of the lack of exposure. Now, it's much better than it was a, than a year ago, but we are still seeing that rebalancing happening. So when people tell me, hey, I didn't get sick for two years wearing a mask, I don't know if that is necessarily a good thing. So you're, are you a fan of the letter rip hypothesis? <laughs> well, I think that the way that was one of the things that I was accused of letting her rip. Well, like, no. I mean, I think that you have to do protection in certain situations, especially in the hospital. Somebody who is in the midst of chemotherapy for lymphoma probably shouldn't be going to a Raptors game. You understand what I'm saying? I think there are certain things that we could do. We should focus our vaccination efforts, or the third dose, for example, on individuals over the age of 65 to 70, people with chronic lung disease, immune suppressed. This is what we have done time immoral for medicine. But I think the idea of, you know, this broad spectrum kind of one brush fits all for everybody, not a good idea. Yeah, it's interesting you comment on uh, the other viruses, which are uh, up in the forefront, which we don't take case counts for, which we don't put on the front page of the newspaper. But by and large, when I'm seeing people who have uh, tested positive for a virus, right? Because one thing that's come out of this is, we do viral swabs very fast and we get the results very fast. And right now we're testing almost anybody with anything abnormal. We're testing them for influenza, right? So the flu, mm -hmm. A and B, mm -hmm. a lot of flu A going around right now. Yeah. We're testing people for RSV, so respiratory syncytial virus. And that knocks out uh, elderly patients, that knocks out kids as well actually a huge problem in kids, way more problematic than COVID-19 for terms of hospitalizations and mortality. And then we test them for COVID-19. And when I'm seeing people who have, by and large, a severe respiratory illness, it's influenza A and RSV, yeah. by and large. Same. If anyone has COVID, it's because they had a swab for who knows what reason. Maybe they had, they had an upset stomach or maybe they had a heart rhythm problem or maybe they were older in a nursing home and were falling and they have COVID, but they're not on oxygen. Their x-ray is fine. So they're kind of like, whatever. You don't know what to make of that. Mm -hmm. But all of these other things that are actually consuming our resources and making people sick aren't part of the conversation. It's just, yeah, it's the winter. So of course, people are going to get that. And if you're older and have other medical conditions, you have emphysema or asthma, or you have heart disease, well, you're at higher risk of needing to be in hospital. And that's that's pretty basic, right? You're in your 80s with a few medical conditions and you're no spring chicken. So yeah. if you pick up a virus, you're more likely to land in hospital. But that's the kind of common sense approach with if, if that's your loved one, if that's your grandma, your mother, your friend, who's elderly, frail, has these medical conditions and you got a runny nose, Knowing what we know now, especially how the populace is informed, you probably shouldn't go visit grandma. Or if you're going to do that, you know, wash your hands, maybe then keeping your distance, maybe then wearing a mask. But that's an individual decision yep. based on a context. But grandma may not want you to do that because grandma wants to hug you because grandma's 80 and doesn't have many years left, right? And so I think our job of giving people information and letting them do with it what they choose is something that still hasn't happened. 
and should happen. So, you know, thinking about some of the decisions we made, and if you think about nursing homes, just crushed, right? These first two waves, people in fixed dwellings, often with poor ventilation, minimal staffing, just crushed by those first few waves of COVID and schools. So school closures. What are your thoughts about both populations? So what happened in the nursing homes and what's happening now, which is business as usual, and school closures that finally reopened? So starting with the nursing homes, and this is the thing that I think was, it's upsetting as a profession where we are trying to help people, we're trying to prevent morbidity and mortality, is that you could have predicted before any of this happened that once a virus goes through, who is going to get really sick and potentially die? And that was going to be especially individuals in nursing homes. I think that, you know, in an effort to shield that population, we basically sometimes in certain situations kept them as prisoners, right? They didn't get COVID, but they had to see their family through glass, right? For two years, they couldn't go outside. It was terrible. So looking at that population, it's hard for me to say this even to this day, but like people in the nursing home were going to die. You had a respiratory virus coming through, whether it's COVID, whether it's influenza, people were going to die. And, you know, you do want to do what you can, separate infected people, flu vaccination, that type of thing. But I think that we didn't do a good preparation of understanding that that population uh, was going to have a large number of deaths, no matter what we did. Now, going over to the other extreme with children, the thing that really bothered me about the way we looked at children is that we looked at children as basically disease vectors. And we knew very early on that kids got COVID, but they didn't get that sick. We started really highlighting cases of kids that were getting sick in the hospital. Of course they were getting, some were getting sick. But if you look at a population of 14 million people in Ontario and the tiny fraction of kids that were getting sick, yet we were closing schools for, how long was it in Ontario? Like over a year, right? Something like that? Too long, year and a half. Year and a half. And that caused immeasurable, still ongoing damage. I got quote unquote lucky that my oldest was in junior kindergarten and she had six months of a mask mandate. That's it. She didn't have to go. She she did two weeks of virtual and she's like her dad, uh, can't sit still, didn't get anything out of it, right? But they were largely unscathed from that. But man, like we basically did all this stuff, these crazy Herculean efforts to stop the viral transmission, which occurred anyway, Tons of people died, which is unfortunate, but I think that we hurt a lot of people in ways that we are still dealing with now with our policies that I understand they were there for good intentions, but I think that on an infectious disease basis, they were harmful and we're seeing that now. We should invite a few parents of uh, high school students. All my children are elementary, preschool aged, but... Holy geez. Like I I reflect on my high school experience was just, it was just a party, right? A social experience. That's all high school was. Those kids were just robbed of that. The mental health impact, the look on their faces and, you know, anecdotal kind of conversations with other parents, the uh, impact on those people who don't have a voice by and large, right? Like children, adolescents aren't old enough to vote, don't create these policies. So, by and large, decisions made out to permit older people to go to casinos and gamble, but children not to go to school because they're going to get everyone sick. And, you know, now that the schools are open, we're all going to get sick. And so something controversial is the term getting boomed. I just made that up right now. You ever been boomed? Uh, No. Well, maybe I have. Explain. That's when a baby boomer 
tells you how it is. Oh. And so <laughs> I would love getting boomed as uh, you know someone who's able to live off their wonderful pension. A pension is something that our children will not have. And they're living off their pension in their, in their Patagonia clothes, social distancing and having food and wine delivered to their houses, yep. living life to the fullest from the lake house, reading books. But getting boomed is being told how once the schools are open, we're all in for it and we're all going to get sick. Mm -hmm. That really kind of highlighted some of the tension I had. You know, there's obviously tension in terms of the messaging amongst healthcare leaders about, you know, maybe we should ease these restrictions versus the hardcore, keep everything shut down, everyone in mass, don't go outside, schools close forever. That was happening there. But then I also noticed the uh, parents, right? Parents of young children versus everybody else. And uh, the, just close the schools down and we'll fix COVID. It's this easy fix. And that was so uh, frustrating. And I remember uh, frequently getting boomed. <laughs> like what that. are some of the kind of misnomers that you heard and, and misconceptions that people had as it pertained to uh, schools being open and closed and what this is going to do to the rest of the world? I think that you really went over uh, part of that really well. I think that the idea that, again, treating children as vectors. And by the way, there probably was some increased transmission with schools. I can see that. But the idea of, is that going to be the difference of our hospitals being overloaded? Because that was a lot of the justification for this. I mean, yes, it was to help stop transmission, help people from getting sick. But ultimately, at least the way that it was being implied was that it was to protect the healthcare system. We don't want too many sick people all at once. And again, what underpins this is that's the responsibility of us to not get sick, right? And with kids, you know, there was the other, I think, misconception is that kids are resilient. Yes, they are, right? But talk to a parent who had a kid in, let's say, grade 10 when this whole thing started. The entire latter part of their secondary education was completely blown out of the water with COVID restrictions and virtual school, that's going to affect that kid for the rest of their lives in a way that they might not ever recover from, especially the kids, many of whom have not gone back to school, uh, you know, from lower socioeconomic status um, uh, circumstances. So these are kind of the things. And again, I think the whole thing is under the umbrella of this misconception that you can stop a respiratory virus. That these things are evolved to infect us. And yeah, up front, they can cause a lot of mortality and morbidity, but later on, they end up just being kind of more nuisances, but they're very effective at circulating in the population. And the idea that we could stop that was, I think, the big misconception. Yeah. Also, the idea that we've been trying these things for repeated lockdowns and they're not changing the successive waves. And they're starting to lead to a lot of downstream things, but let's keep acting the same way. It was ridiculous because they say, and I'm not saying they say, but this has actually been well studied in the UK and North America, that social isolation and loneliness has the same impact on your cardiovascular health as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years. Wow. Social isolation and loneliness almost doubles. The chances that you're going to develop a major depressive uh, disorder is highly associated with increased use of uh, substances, drinking, cannabinoids, other recreational uh, drugs of your picking. 
And so the isolation, and when you commented on our elderly people living in nursing homes who are already by and large isolated, dependent on others to assist them for care needs, for meals, for toileting, for dressing, are now then not allowed to leave their rooms and not allowed to see their families. And how are you going to get a 92-year-old to work an iPad to FaceTime you? Very few people can do that. So the impact of that isolation was bad. It was awful. And uh, the impact of school closures, right? So, you know, looking at uh, children's development and all the kids who are now we're seeing are behind in reading. U.S. societies of pediatrics and educators stating that the lockdowns drastically harmed our future, right? This is our future workforce. And it's going to be a bunch of kids who can't read and write because they had to learn that on Zoom. And uh, the mental impacts and social integration impacts of our teenagers who, who had these lockdowns. Like you could have died of COVID then, but you're now going to die of mental health, substance use disorders and suicide later on because of what we did. And you're going to die of complications of isolation and weight gain that are going to give you heart attacks and type 2 diabetes and all these bad things. So we see that now. And I, I don't think it's too late for us to get out of this. We're going to have to change our approach. So some of those things that we talked about included, you know, are you wearing a mask now and who should wear a mask? And one of my most recent pet peeves is when someone tells me that they have COVID. Yeah. yeah. It annoys me. It annoys you? Yeah. And what it is, <laughs> is more is that my question is, why do you know that? Right. And I think, again, this idea of uh, COVID exceptionalism is still kind of uh, pervading in everyday kind of life. Now, there's, most of us aren't testing anymore because, you know, for the most part, COVID is just like any of the other circulating respiratory viruses. You get a sore throat and a cold. But I understand why people do it. Right. I understand they're doing it because, oh, I have been told that if I have COVID, you know, it's the right thing to do to not give it to somebody else. And that's some of the, the trash messaging, making people feel guilty for a respiratory virus, if you really boil it down to that. So the thing is, what I find ironic is that let's say if you have a, you're feeling sick, okay, like, you know, sick enough that you would probably stay home, but you're going to go to a party and your buddy has a heart issue. So you test yourself for COVID, it's, it's negative but maybe you have rhinovirus, right? So now, you know what, maybe I'll go to that party, right? But the thing is, is that rhinovirus is more of a problem for cardiac patients than COVID ever was. All I'm saying is that it changes your perception of things. And I wrote this, you can see on the camera, is that testing has made me upset and worried, the kind of broad spectrum community testing, and that it pulls societal fabric in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Like people really change their behavior, the way they interact with others, the way they're approaching the world based on the result of a rapid test, which I think that it can be negative. Now, should we still test in hospital? Yes. But do I think the average person needs to be testing for COVID every time they get a, a sore throat or fever? No. Well, so that's the thing is, Working in the line of work I worked in, I oversaw a training programs. So I oversaw fellowship and uh, you know student and residency training programs, where our workforce, by and large, in an academic hospital, was contingent on learners. Right. Mm -hmm. So those teaching hospitals, you got trainees. Right. The doctor, like Doctor House, is being followed by a whole bunch of junior doctors, and that's the workforce right there. That's what allows the hospitals to stay open overnight and uh, have patients being seen at uh, six a.m. on Easter Monday, whatever. Yeah. And throughout all of that, when we didn't want to get our patients sick, people would inform you if you had symptoms. 
And I remember the first year getting screenshots. I think I probably have about 80 in my phone, screenshots of positive rapid tests or screenshots of positive PCRs, which was kind of like a a sense of duty. You know, resident doctors, like doctors in training, have a a really good sense of duty and uh, don't like to miss work. And the restrictions came up that if they actually did have COVID, they couldn't go to work, right? Mm -hmm. And they were breaking rules, in fact, if they went to work. And if they had symptoms, they had to get tested. This was being tracked. So they would send you those things. And I got it, right? Like, okay, I know you're not lying, but like, you aren't a liar to begin with, so I trust you. Yep, nice. But I'm still getting those now. And when I get those, it's become like the person in the mask driving alone in the car. It's a bit of a red flag, which is for all of what you described is you tested yourself because you have symptoms. And because it's not COVID, like that means you can still go to the party with the friend who's susceptible to it or go into work. But it's part of that learning to live with viruses and that, that old adage of if you're sick, don't go to work, right? Mm-hmm. If you have the capacity to not go to work. If you have a union, if you have sick days, if you have all of those things. But if you don't have it, you're going to power through. And by and large, physicians don't have that. So in Canada, medical doctors, if you don't go to work and don't see patients, you don't get paid. So I've seen a lot of that stoicism, that behavior of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work unless I'm on death's door and need a ventilator is in part driven because there's a lot of uh, narcissism and personality disorders in our profession. But part of it is the simple fact that if we don't work, we don't get paid, right? So what's the point of testing? But the question I have for you is when should healthcare workers not be going to work? This is something that I've looked at. And I, uh, when we saw Omicron rolling in, we knew this would be a problem. So first of all, I think the old adage, as you mentioned, that like if you're really sick, if you have a fever, you don't go to work. But yeah, there are going to be times where like, look, people have runny nose, a bit of sore throat. I have a bit of that spicy feeling in my pharynx. You go to work. And are you contagious? Probably a little bit. It's hard to stop that. But where we painted ourselves into a corner was when we started having our testing mechanism overrun by Omicron, because Omicron was much more contagious, all of a sudden, everybody's getting COVID. Everybody. And even if you had that, you know, before COVID, you thought that you're deathly ill, but now that person that with that spicy feeling was testing their COVID. So the problem was, okay, so now you stay home, but whoa, now we have nobody to look after patients right? I'll say this, there's the uncomfortable truth that yes, people do come to work sick, but the vast majority are mild illnesses that, you know, you would never stay home from work for, but you can't kind of keep that. It's not sustainable by telling people don't come to work with a runny nose and then expect to have uh, the staff that you need for um, looking after your patients. So I think what I say now is that if you are really sick, stay home from work, let's say a upper respiratory tract, fever, major cough, it just started, stay home from work a couple of days if you can. Find somebody to cover for you, come back when you feel better, leave the tests out of it, okay? I think the testing at this point in time, we should be doing in hospital where it actually makes a difference. So for example, if you have COVID and you are on oxygen, you have a chest x-ray with pneumonia in it, we might give you uh, steroids. We might give you some other medications for that. Although I haven't done that in a long time but uh, because people aren't getting that sick. But the point is, is that in the hospital, that might actually change the management. Whereas if you have a cold at home, knowing it's COVID versus not, I think the positive test causes more problems than the actual virus itself. 
Yeah. That sustainability comment makes total sense, which is if you're sick and are getting admitted to hospital, right? Or your friend is getting sick, your mom, your grandma is so sick, they need to come into hospital. Do you want them admitted to a room where there's no cleaning or support staff, there's no nursing staff, and there's no physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, because they're all self-isolating for 14 days because their rat was positive because they had a funny sensation in their nose? Or do you want your staff to be there to look after you? And if they're feeling like they have a man cold, to know that they're wearing a mask and they're washing their hands and they're doing individual independent things to mitigate the risk of spread. Acknowledging, too, that many viruses are transmitted during the asymptomatic phase to begin with. So you might not feel anything, but you can still be contagious. Yeah, And, you know, that sustainability is something that we need to get to a balance with. There are individual actions that we need to take, and you kind of outlined some of the important roles that masks may or may not play. We all understand the values and virtues of hand hygiene, protecting those who we know are at risk of getting sick, the person getting cancer treatment, the person who's on immune suppressive therapy for their Crohn's disease or their lupus. What about vaccination? So that's an interesting one right now. I have patients I see who proudly tell me they've had their seventh and eighth dose. And what's that doing for people? This is another area that has concerned me with the way we've approached this in in our field. Vaccines, I'm an infectious disease doctor. Vaccines are one of the greatest interventions known to man. But the one thing that we should remember, these are still medical interventions and should be treated as such. So I think that upfront, certainly we knew what the risk gradient was with COVID, especially age. Age was by far the most. And I think that what we needed to do is continue to see who was at the highest risk and then giving the vaccine to those people, which we tried, we certainly tried to do that in our rollout. Where we are now in the present, which this episode is about, is do we need to be giving people every six month boosters? And the problem that I have with this is that I don't think we have good, solid evidence saying that we need to do that. And there's possibility, you know, theoretic possibility that we might not be doing anything and a small possibility we might be doing harm. And I think that in medicine, the way we've always adjudicated this is with randomized control data. You know, we have observational data. There's no doubt about that. But at this point in time, there's going to be a lot of bias introduced because the people who are getting that seventh, eighth, ninth dose they're a different population than the people that say have three doses and they said, I'm done, right? And you might see different outcomes for different reasons. So I think right now, especially even I'm seeing, I saw a guy with metastatic lung cancer, 70 years old, on oxygen at home. He came in for a fall and his COVID test was weakly positive, which in this circumstance means he probably had COVID weeks ago and he got better. He survived that, but something else brought him in. So if even individuals who are that ill, that they have comorbidities and they're not going to the ICU with COVID, we have to think that what are we actually preventing here and what can we better do to target our intervention? And we normally do trials for that, but we haven't really done that. And right now we have a recommendation to basically give the vaccine to everybody, even though most doctors are not going to be recommending this to a healthy 35-year-old man and focusing on, on probably the people that we don't even know if they get benefit, but from that, you know, that 85-year-old in a nursing home that even a small benefit might help keep them out of hospital. 
Well, I think that's one of the dangers too, is it can quickly become something of a personal opinion rather than a recommendation based on science and objectivity. And so the randomized control trial you're talking about would be taking a million people in one group and a million people in the other and giving one group the placebo dose 10 and the other group given the the actual dose 10 and maybe another group who gets the AstraZeneca or a viral vector, right, which is created differently, which is important, right? Viral vector versus mRNA vaccines, they work differently. And then looking at the outcomes and the outcomes need to control for things. Like you mentioned, people who choose not to be vaccinated, are they more likely to go to large gatherings and party and and not not, uh, wash their hands or wear a mask if they're around people? Are there other kind of habit and lifestyle things that may play into it? And we need to truly understand if it's making a difference in disease transmission, making a difference in terms of uh, severity of illness, and making a difference in terms of death right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have that right now. So we're acting based on our past experience and making inferences based on how things work. But one of my other side jobs is I actually sit on the federal government's board to review uh, claims of people who believe they were injured by the vaccine. So in Canada, when our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau mandated vaccines for most Canadians, they created a program which was a safeguard, which was basically, we're mandating vaccinations so you can work and get out in the world. But if you are injured by the vaccine, we will compensate you. And so what that means is not just the COVID vaccine, but all the vaccines that we ask people to get. If you believe you were injured by that, we're going to have a group of clinicians and experts review those cases to see who's been injured. And we have paid people out, right? People have been legitimately injured by the vaccines. All vaccines, as we know, they induce an immune response. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that immune response recognizes yourself by accident. And we think about myocarditis with the Pfizer vaccine in young men generally self-limiting, right, runs its course and goes away, uh, but can leave people with chronic heart problems. We have weird neurological things, you know, transverse myelitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which are associated with some of the vaccines. And we're just looking at these individual claims. But when we look at vaccines as a whole, the incidences of these conditions like heart failure and myocarditis from COVID-19 is way higher than from the vaccine. So by and large, the vaccine is safer. But vaccinations by and large themselves are not something that are free of risk right? Even the immune-mediated stress response, which is you get nervous and anxious when you get the vaccine and you black out, right? You have a vasovagal event. That's well-described. And there's people who have vasovagal events and knock their teeth out and knock their heads out and end up getting brain bleeds from that. So I think there's things to consider with that. Those are one of the factors that need to go into recommending uh, who gets a vaccine. So who do you feel, by and large, needs to get another dose? Anybody? Yeah, see, I I think right now, I look at it that the vast majority don't, right? I think that uh, based on what we're seeing clinically, I think that the cost-benefit analysis favors nothing further unless things change. Where I think the cost-benefit analysis does favor giving, and when I say cost-benefit, maybe it's better to say risk-benefit. That's better. Because when you look at somebody who is in a nursing home where a hospitalization is a very, very big thing for somebody who's 85 in a nursing home, you can get all sorts of things that can make things worse, even if it doesn't work. If there's a small benefit there, I think that overall for that population, it would be helpful. I think the other one that we still consider, especially individuals that are particularly immune suppressed and those with transplants, 
people that have blood cancers like leukemia and a lymphoma on chemotherapy. So your actual immune system is being kind of attacked by the cancer and in some cases also the chemotherapy. These are the kind of cases that I think we should focus on. And thankfully, these populations are generally kind of well surveilled by the medical system. And I still would like to see some objective randomized data in these populations, because one thing to consider is the virus that we're seeing now is not the same as that we saw back in April 2021, right? Uh, Omicron is quite mild in the vast majority of cases, even in older individuals, even in uh, profound immune suppression. So I would like to know that better, but looking at the scale of uh, risk and benefit right now, these mentioned populations are the ones that I still think that we should offer the vaccine to. Such helpful information we've shared today talking about uh, masks, individual things we can do to protect one another, some of the science and studies that are needed to happen to guide our decision-making, and some practical recommendations about things as it pertains to vaccination. I just have one final question for you, Suman, as it pertains to vaccines. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the spoon video? Is that the one where the spoons stick to somebody's... Uh Skin, uh, magnetic? Yeah, because of the microchips in the vaccine. <laughs> the microchips in the vaccine. So will you engage with someone who shows you the spoon video? No, I think so. This is the way, and <laughs> this, is, uh, this is what I, I found like with uh, an interesting, my approach to this change when I saw this 2014 article in pediatrics about uh, uh, kind of vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccine sentiment is that you found that in the individuals that are kind of close to the fence, can support them and explain things and they might change their mind. But people that are far away from the fence, in fact, if you try to kind of engage in, in a discussion, it actually pushes them farther away, right? And it's not that I don't want to talk to people, but I think there is a certain element that the benefit, am I really going to get much? Am I going to just get angry and do any persuasion whatsoever? So I think in those situations, I would say, I would be, you know, civil, say, look, I, this is not, there's no evidence for this. This kind of stuff uh, is not what we were seeing. It's uh, not based on any good scientific rigor. And then after that, you know, it's kind of, I, I don't want to get too much into the rabbit hole, if that makes sense. Well, just if the spoon sticks to the side of the vaccine, just cut open your arm, show me the RFID microchip. The RFID microchip, or, or the ones that, but if they're nanorobots, that's different. That's true, because it's too small too, to too small to see. Exactly, exactly. Right, that's right. Not, not visible to the human eye. So thank you, uh, Suman, head of infectious disease, Trillium Health Partners, and uh, one of the national faces in terms of educating and informing our public in Canada here about our COVID-19 response. Uh, thank you for your wisdom and your time as we discuss the uh, present state of COVID-19. I look forward to hosting you in our third and final episode of this three-part series whereby we'll talk about the future of COVID-19 and uh, some of the things that you're going to do personally to plan for this, some of the things that you expect to see. This is definitely an interesting world we have coming up to us. And uh, I wanted to uh, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Again, great to be here and looking forward to our uh, next talk. Wow, what a great conversation that we had in the studio today with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. It was really amazing to debrief on our collective experiences in the early stages of the pandemic and talk about how that applies to what we're doing now. It was pretty crazy early on in the pandemic when we were all afraid of dying, right? We all saw those pictures of people dying in China, people dying in Italy, hospitals overcrowded. And in some ways, we overreacted out of fear. And that became a big part of the mainstream media's messaging here. 
And it's understandable, right? We're all afraid. You know, Suman and I are healthcare experts. He's the head of infectious diseases, right? He totally understands this and lives this day by day. But him and I were both afraid of this, right? We didn't want to end up on a ventilator. We didn't want to end up in a pile of dead bodies outside a hospital. But as we got more and more information, we now have the power and the knowledge to act responsibly and act based on the data that's out there. So this was a very therapeutic conversation for me to talk about how we're both approaching things in the current state and also to question and challenge some of the things that we're doing. Now, don't get me wrong, this pandemic's been awful, right? It's killed a lot of people. It's really diverted a lot of resources to one particular area. It's left us with a bit of a mental health pandemic that's coming now from all these lockdowns, the impact of school closures. It's changed our behaviors. It's created enemies out of prior friends. It's really been polarizing. But there have been some good things that have come out of this. You know, one of them is the vaccine. The whole world of scientific experts work together feverishly to create an effective vaccine to develop new technologies with respect to mRNA vaccinations. And this really made a huge difference in terms of case counts and severity of illness, right? It really reduced deaths and reduced the severity and comorbidity associated with COVID-19 infection. We also had a chance to see what different countries countries did. You know, we had a chance to see what countries with strict lockdowns did and how their patients fared. We had an opportunity to see how countries with liberal, right, letter rip hypotheses did and what this led down the line. We also have so much data now that we can really understand what works, what doesn't work, and how we should apply this to things like masking, to things like do you go to a party or not? Do you cough in a movie theater? Like that's how we started our conversation off today. And so there are a lot of interesting reflections that we had today. And I think we've learned a lot and we need to continue to learn and apply this to how we approach the pandemic in general, to how we approach viral illnesses. Look, we've learned to live with viruses the entire history of humanity, right? Viruses are in our body. Many of us have viruses that are dormant, you know, herpes viruses that give the cold sores, Epstein-Barr viruses. They're here. They're a part of our humanity. They're a part of our genetic makeup for all intents and purposes. And it's kind of foolish to think that we can hide inside forever and never get sick. We now have wonderful tools to protect us from severe infection like vaccination. We also have wonderful tools that can treat active disease. And then we've also learned a lot as a collective society about how to minimize the spread of things hand hygiene, not touching your face repeatedly, wearing a mask in certain situations, and simply staying home if you're really sick and really symptomatic. And so we've learned a lot and we can apply this to all facets of our life and we will continue to learn. I'm really looking forward to having Sumon back in the studio for our third and final episode of this three-part series, whereby we look into the future, right? We can look at all of this information and these actions and behaviors that we have, how are they going to apply next year and the year after, right? Wave 15, wave 16. What if we get some crazy variant that kills everybody? Is that going to happen? Is that a possibility? What about the next pandemic, the next virus, right? Think back to H1N1, H1N2, avian flu. 
Where did these things come from? What are we going to do to prepare for them in the future? And how are we going to act differently? And then talking about the non-infectious diseases aspect, right? Like what are the downstream impact of these school closures on the development and growth of children and society? What's the landscape of the business fabric going to look like? How many people are going to be bankrupt and filing for insolvencies? So lots of downstream impact from our behaviors during the pandemic earlier and now today need to be considered. And this will hopefully be enlightening as we plan for the future. I want to thank Dr. Chakrabarty again for bringing his all to the table today and having a stimulating, evidence-based and informed discussion with me today. No holds barred, candid conversations, telling it like it is. That was great. I'm really looking forward to hosting him in the studio for our third and final episode and really want to thank all of our listening audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Bonta, the home of science-based skepticism. Tune in next Wednesday for another healthcare conversation. For more information, please visit labcoat.fm.